The Slate Political Gab Fest is brought to you by Open Account, a podcast series created by Suchin Pak and Umqua Bank. Open Account explores through honest and sometimes comical interviews our uncomfortable silence around money. Open Account is available now on iTunes. And by Goldman Sachs. Get information about developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy on the firm's podcast. Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, available on iTunes. And by Bonobos. Bonobos takes the pain and hassle out of finding stylish clothes that fit. For a limited time, all new customers can get 20% off their first order at bonobos.com slash gabfest. That's B-O-N-O-B-O-S dot com slash gabfest. Discover the difference that an expertly crafted, better-fitting wardrobe can make. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for October 2nd, 2015, the Living Will Envy the Dead edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine joins me telephonically from a closet in New Haven, Connecticut. Hello, Emily. Hello. I'm in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, just so you know where my closet is located. From a closet in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Hello. Uh, is that why you were, you were talking to your sister there? That's who it was. Yeah. Oh, I was wondering. Say hi to your sister. Uh, and then John Dickerson is, he got a week of vacation. Face the Nation gave him a couple of days off. So John can't join us today. Um, but we are joined instead by our stalwart regular substitute, Jamel Bowie, the chief political correspondent of Slate. Hello, Jamel. He's here Hello. in Washington. Hello. Uh, Jamel's wearing camouflage pants. So if you can't see him during this podcast, that's probably why. On this week, <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Tark. I appreciate it. Uh, on this week's GabFest, the aftermath of John Boehner's departure, what will happen in Congress and what will happen in December in Congress. Then the showdown between Vladimir Putin and Barack Obama over Syria. And then a truly horrifying case involving prosecutorial fiddling with DNA evidence. Plus cocktail chatter and in Slate Plus, how should Volkswagen be punished? I have ideas. If you are not yet a Slate Plus member, you can get it by going to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. Two very quick announcements. One, we're still uh, taking applications for our intern position. Uh, as you know, Tarek is leaving us, which means we need a new Tarek. And it's uh, a paid position, part-time, ideally in Washington, D.C. And you can apply by sending us a resume and cover letter to GabFest at slate.com. And then just a quick preview announcement. We are going to be doing a live Superfest podcast with some of the other Slate podcasts in New York's Town Hall, New York City Town Hall, uh, on November 16th. The tickets are not available, but keep your eyes open at slate.com slash live. Tickets should be available next week. John Boehner is presumably enjoying his week of freedom. Congress passed a continuing resolution funding the government through December while he exits to the tanning salon, taking kind of a victory lap as he goes. Boehner went on CBS's Face the Nation with our friend John this weekend, and he slashed out at the false prophets of the Republican Party, referring to the conservatives who, who are, have been uncompromising what they're demanding he, he do. And we have a Republican Party that is riven not actually over policy differences, as we'll discuss, but over tactics, over means, a faction that simply opposes the process, a nihilistic faction that opposes the process. Kevin McCarthy, uh, the colorless 
California Republican, five-term California Republican is likely to be the next speaker. There's less, less clarity about the next majority leader, but it will probably be somebody you haven't really heard of, but who might, he might be very conservative. He might not be very conservative. He definitely will be a he. So Jamel, um, McCarthy is going to make all the difference, right? It's just when he comes in, everything's going to change. I mean, if he makes all the difference, it won't be because he can wrangle the Republicans in the House, or at least this minority of Republicans who seem to have a ton of leverage and influence in the conference. But it will be because he kind of just capitulates to them. And he's already promised to have more confrontations with the White House to to do more, to try to implement the Republican agenda. And the problem, of course, is that there's no – institutionally, there's just nothing else – Nothing else we can do. Boehner accomplished a lot, in fact. Boehner accomplished large spending cuts, was able to sort of redirect the attention of the federal government from spending to sort of spending cuts in 2011 and 2012. Um, but there's there there are limits to what you can do from, from the Congress. And so, you know, knocking McCarthy, I don't think it's going to change much. I think he's going to find himself in the same situation that Boehner was in, which is a bunch of angry conservatives who want to tear everything down but actually cannot because this is how American government is designed to work. Um, and they take it out on their leaders. So Emily, the, I saw this great tweet. Somebody uh, described what would happen in Congress as the living will envy the dead, meaning that that all these people who now are moving up in leadership are going to wish they were John Boehner and had, had left because the, the situation they're going to find themselves in is like what Boehner found himself in, the impossible squeeze between an implacable conservative wing and a a Democratic president that they feel it's anathema to compromise with, and it's just going to be a worse situation. Is that right? Well, my favorite detail so far about McCarthy is that he brought jackets for the other folks on the whip team. And that, you know, somebody was quoted in the New York Times this morning as saying, you know, that really makes a difference, those little details or, you know, those gestures. And I thought, well, maybe we're going to have another version of the conversation about whether President Obama has done enough to lubricate the social um, avenues in Washington. And can McCarthy drum up enough personal loyalty? He's raised money for a lot of these guys, right, and helped pick the people who are running. And will those personal ties make some difference for him in a way that that John Boehner's didn't. It seems really implausible because Boehner was also well-liked when he started out. Yeah, I can answer that question with one word, no. Um, (laughs) Given, so the continuing resolution gets us through when? I think December. December 11th. December 11th, still December 11th. So what is going to happen in December, Jamel? I don't know. There's a, a, I think there's a decent chance the shutdown happens. You still have House conservatives who want to defund Planned Parenthood. they are very, they're not amenable to compromise. McCarthy, I mean, this is sort of the bad thing about having a new speaker at this time. McCarthy is going to feel that he needs to sort of show loyalty to his caucus. And I don't think he's going to want to forge an alliance with Democrats to pass sort of a clean spending bill this early on. Maybe if he had, maybe this were next year, it'd be different. But right now, I don't, I just don't think he has the political capital to do it. Um, so, so therefore, what happens? I, I think we get a shutdown in December myself. But, but a shutdown that goes on. and Because shutdowns, you still have to resolve it. Shut, right, a shutdown right. doesn't end it. A shutdown right, no, just means I, I, then you have to figure out what what happens. I mean, if, if, Boehner's, if Boehner's tenure is any indication, there will be a shutdown. It will last for a couple of weeks. And then eventually McCarthy will just have to like suck it up and like cut the deal. So, so President Obama has acted fairly responsibly during government shutdowns so far. He has, he has not declared uh, – 
he's declared essential workers to encompass pretty much anyone who does anything. But for example, he could say that people who send social security checks are not social essential workers. He could say that that air traffic controllers are not essential workers. He could should presumably not pay people in the military if he felt like that was necessary. Is, do we think he's likely just to immediately play hardball? Is he, is he going to he's, – he's behaved so responsibly. I assume he'll continue to behave responsibly. My sense is he'll continue behaving responsibly, especially since there's a real political reason to do so. I mean, a shutdown – this will be a shutdown the year before – or the month before the presidential election really starts in earnest. And it provides a wonderful contrast if you're a Democrat – um, to have the sober-minded and serious President Obama trying his best to keep government run as these arch-conservatives shut down the government over defunding an organization that most Americans support. Emily, what do you think the effect on the... Well, if the government shuts down in December, how does it affect the presidential race? It seems to me like it supposed to hurt the Republicans, and yet one imagines that in the end it will just create a lot of frustration with government more generally. And that's like the great trick the the nihilist Republicans have up their sleeve. The more that people get frustrated with government, the less they believe in government-based solutions. And in the end, that also hurts Democrats. So it seems to me like people... There tends to be a kind of feeling of po- the pox on both your houses. And even if de- Republicans get hurt somewhat more in the House, that doesn't necessarily translate into a problem for all the Republican candidates. I do wonder, though, if a couple of them are going to be held more responsible. You know, it was striking that Marco Rubio made a big deal of announcing Bainter's departure, clearly siding with his foes in the House. And, you know, could that is that something voters will remember that, you know, Rubio kind of set us up for this shutdown? And is he going to seem somewhat responsible if things go haywire? No, but probably they'll forget. Come on. Right? He's not. He won't. Why would he? I mean, Ted Cruz, maybe will be seen yeah. as responsible because Ted Cruz supports. But he wasn't going to be the nominee anyway. I mean, it, it, de- it depends. I can very easily imagine, you know, Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders or anyone sort of posing a question to Republican opponents. Well, you know, what would you have done? That's all you have to ask. Like, what would what would you have done in this situation? Would you have agreed to shut this down? Um, but don't you think then they'll have some good line about how, well, you know, if the president wasn't being so unreasonable, if people would just listen to right. our great policy I'm a ideas. Republican pre- you know, when I'm president, this won't be an issue yep. because we'll, <laughs> we'll have a, co- a president who's able to work with the Congress to get legislation right. passed for right. the American right. people. Right. Unlike this yes. president who's unable to do it, right. who's unable to be a, to a, a partner with with the majorities in the Senate and the, and that, the That's House. a really elegant way of saying, you know, well, I'd be a Republican in this this just wouldn't happen exactly. in me. <laughs> Can I ask a question? I really want to hear what you guys think about. But trying to think about why it is that the Republicans are in the predicament they're in, where they have this piece of the party that's pushing them in this more radical direction is essentially taking the rest of the party hostage. Did this happen when they took over the House and became the majority of the House as a kind of natural outcome of that? I mean, if you look back to when the Democrats used to control the House back in the day, there was more diversity among Democratic ranks, right? I mean, we had Southern Democrats who were fighting with the rest of the country's Democrats about a number of things. And now the Democratic Party is smaller and more unified. And I just wonder if part of being the majority party is that in order to have that majority, you end up with this more fractious, disparate caucus. So I think I think that's part of it. I, I think there are a couple of things happening. I mean, I, I think first, sort of the major macro difference between um, the Republican 
conference and the Democratic conference is just that the I think the Republican conference is like much more ideological than the Democratic one. Even even this smaller, more liberal Democratic conference is sort of less devoted. There there is no sort of singular. We have to grow government thing. Lots of people, different people have lots of different interests, and they're all trying to pursue them. Really, on the Republican side, it seems to be that the singular interest is we have to shrink government. We have to cut government. You have within that sort of you know that that group of people um, a, a significant minority that comes from super homogenous districts, so homogenous that regardless of gerrymandering or districting, they would just be heavily Republican districts. They are in Congress specifically to cause to cause trouble. They ran on. They they have a hell no caucus, right? They they ran on. Um, we'll stop Obamacare. We'll you know investigate Benghazi, so on and so forth. And they're antagonistic not just to Democrats but to the Republican establishment. And I think sort of the other element of this is just the extent to which the Republican media ecosystem is filled with you know we have Fox talk radio, all these individuals and groups who send the message nonstop that your Republican leaders are dis- untrustworthy and they're capitulating to Obama. And if we only had better, more pure leaders, we could stop Obama. Um, you know, last time but that I was almost on seems overdetermined to me. That almost feels like, well, then everyone should be acting like the 50 Republicans who want to shut down the government. Not necessarily. If the incentives were that strong, right? There, there, are, there are Republicans who do, who are in districts that are more competitive, that do have to worry about electoral concerns and can't kind of go that route. But you do have some that who are immune to any kind of political pressure other than pressure from their right. And, and not only are they immune, I, w- I would say it's not just that they are opposed to the Republican establishment, Jamel. They're opposed to le- the legislature as a – they fundamentally don't believe in the job that they have. Right. right. They don't – they actually don't think that the legisl- – they don't want to be – they don't want to pass legislation. They just – they exist to, to – to, to block activity. Or if but, they want to pass legislation, they do not believe that they ought to have to compromise to do it. Right, which means they they don't believe in politics. They're yeah. not fundamentally politicians, and that that is the distinction. That's why I th- I can't remember who wrote this. I mean, the, the, this point that the Republican conference is not particularly ideologically divided. John Boehner would defund Planned Parenthood if he could. John Boehner right. would raise military spending slash various domestic spending. Would would you know deny Medicaid coverage to anyone under Obamacare? He would repeal Obamacare. He would do all of those things. He just believes in a political system. So it's it's a distinction between belief in a process versus belief in no process. Right. I guess what I was asking is, in order to have enough members of the House that you have a strong majority in the House, do you end up necessarily with a party that has these different factions in it? Because no. there's I mean, just that much diversity. Dem- no? No, because, it, well, the Democratic Party, even when the Democratic Party, you know, had uh, a, a third of it was racist white Southerners, uh, and then, you know, various kinds of breed of northern populists and labor, they, they all those people actually they were all willing to get in a room and sort of hammer stuff out and and right. legislate. Right. I mean, I, yeah, th- that's a good point. Their form of diversity was not a form that questioned the very premise of government itself. In, in a real sense, the Democratic coalition is a governing coalition in the sense that every constituent part is interested in some concrete thing, and the Republican one is not. And that just makes, I mean, in, in our system, that just makes, there's not, nothing can happen. Right. It's absolutely terrifying to me. I mean, we've, we've talked about this before because there are two options. Option one is you have a Democratic a president in control of one uh, institute of the legislature, the Senate. 
in which case there is a there, it, this nihilistic house is able to stop essentially anything that's happened. And we've seen that with President Obama, who was able to get legislation for a year or two and really has not gotten anything except at the point of a gun since then. Or you get a Republican president who then has a Republican House and Senate who will do absolutely terrifying things. Who wants to it's, execute Louis the Sixteenth? Yeah, it's it's uh, the the Jacobins <laughs> and the Girondists and uh, the Saint Culottes are I, I, all. I'm telling you, the French Revolution is the perfect analogy for all of this. It's have you written that piece yet, Jamal? I want to read that piece. I have read, written that piece. All right, I'm going to go find it. <laughs> I just want to say one last sound, one last um, note of, I don't know, it's not note of mourning for John Boehner, one last note of regret. You know, if he was going to go down, I wish he had gone down over passing immigration reform a couple of years ago when there was actually enough moderate Republican support that along with the Democrats, they could have passed it. I, I think that would have just completely fractured the Republican Party. I, I think I think if you're thinking in terms of like what is good for the party in the short term, passing immigration is not a good idea. Long term, it's like what you have to do. But short term, there's a, there's such division in the Republican Party over immigration. I think it would have imploded the what, party. What if he'd gone down with a What about two- the good of the country, Jamel? What oh, about yeah, that? Blah. I mean, no one thinks about that anymore. <laughs> what if he went down with a two? Why is it? Do you think there's any chance, Jamel? I'll leave this. Make this the last question. Is there any chance that Boehner uses his last month to try to push through a two-year deal, some kind of two-year budget deal? I think I think that's a possibility. He tries to push through maybe highway funding, something that would require him to buck those fifty or so, or so members of the party, but not on anything that would sort of, you know, crater the Republican Party's coalition in any, in, in any way. That you can you can ignore. You have a lot of people who are like, yeah, we have to do highway funding, but I'm afraid of getting primary to my right. If Boehner's one who takes the takes a dive for it, then that's fine. He still needs some other votes, though, remember? He has been known to make deals and then not be able to provide the votes to see them through. I mean, I, I think in the case of something like highway funding, Pelosi would provide votes for him. Oh, yeah, definitely. But he still needs some, right? <laughs> Otherwise, right. it would be Pelosi's job to do this. <laughs> yeah, so there have to be some people who vote with him. I mean, there's a degree to which, like, the government, the House has, you know, when it got stuff done, it has been thanks to Pelosi, which is funny to me. Just a final note, we, we the three of us, talked right uh, before John interviewed John Dickerson, interviewed John Boehner over the weekend. Uh, that interview, John Boehner just has the most beautiful, sensitive eyes. <laughs> you look at him, and he's you. He's a he's like a soul. You see a soul in that man. I have no idea if there a is a soul, hound man. but he really has. His eyes are astonishing. If I were if I were doing a portrait of him, like a photo portrait, like I would, it would be very hard not to have his eyes just be the entire focus of the portrait. Right. The word limpid comes to mind. Wow. Well, they're limpid also because they're, he's always crying. And so they, that crying, makes them limpid. Right. They're like teary and bleary. Um, okay. I thought he was going to cry like in every second of that interview. It was actually making me tense to watch it. <clears throat> he's happy when he's crying. It doesn't, it doesn't bother him. That's a really good point. The Gapfest is sponsored by Open Account. Money is one of the last great taboos, something we all need but rarely dare to discuss until now. Open Account, a series of interviews created by Suchin Pak and Umqua Bank, explores our collective uncomfortable silence around money. Honest, emotional, and sometimes comical. Open Account goes deep into the most rewarding, challenging, and paradoxical aspects of the number one leading stressor in America, money. Open Account is available now on iTunes. President Obama and Vladimir Putin met at the UN this week to talk about Syria, a meeting that was quickly followed by Russian airstrikes in Syria against foes of President Assad. Putin has put all his chips in on Assad, citing, I guess, a need for stability, a supposed desire to fight Islamic uh, 
terrorists protecting the Alawite and Christian minority there. He's not only planning airstrikes, I think he's also planning to deploy actual Russian soldiers in Syria. The U.S., of course, sees this differently in many, many, many shades of gray. We will talk about some of those shades of gray. We uh, have brought in our go-to commentator, Julia Yaffe, of uh, the world. Where are you of? I can never remember where you are of these days, Julia. In terms of publications? Yeah. Uh, New York Times Magazine and Foreign Policy. Of the New York Times Magazine and Foreign Policy. We will claim her. Uh, <laughs> and GabFest sometimes. So whenever terrible <laughs> things are happening in Russia or anywhere near Russia, Julia's our go-to person. And we just discovered the amazing fact that Jamel and Julia, who are both GabFest regulars, never met before, uh, even though they live in the same city and are both journalists. Um, and it, that was exciting. So I mean, Julia, that does welcome. include a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but you're both like in this, you know, your slight orbit. But we love orbit. you, so you're we assume GabFest that you world. must. I don't know. It just, it just, it was shocking. Drink Surprising. after this? <laughs> <laughs> So, Julia, who is um, Russia bombing? Why is it, and why is that important? So, when Russia started its uh, air campaign in Syria on Wednesday, it became clear pretty quickly that they were bombing not ISIS as they had uh, said they would, and that's what the resolution that the Russian Federation Council, which is the upper house of the Russian parliament, gave Vladimir Putin permission to do. They were actually bombing, if you look at the maps of the Russian airstrikes, they were bombing along the front lines of where Assad is fighting non-ISIS rebels, some of which are CIA-vetted American-backed rebels. So when Vladimir Putin said he was going to help Bashar al-Assad, he meant he was going to help Bashar al-Assad, not that he was going to take out ISIS. So he's doing a lot of the same things that Assad is. He's using non-precision guided missiles, dumb bombs. Um, so he's causing a lot of carnage on the ground. There are already a lot of the civilian death toll of the Russian Russian attacks is already piling up. And um, yeah, he's fighting the same people Assad is. Assad isn't fighting ISIS, really. Isn't there a kind of clarity of purpose in Putin that we should admire? At least he has a There's a policy. There's a policy there. <laughs> sure. And it kind of dovetails, well... I don't know. Before they started bombing, I was going to say kind of dovetails with our own in that we're very hesitant to get involved in Syria. And I think rightly so. It's a mess. And even though the U.S. has been also running uh, a, an air campaign for a year now, you know, we've just abandoned the training program. We trained four or five guys, literally four or five guys. It cost they know if it's four or they, like, five? really well-trained? Like, <laughs> maybe, like, you know, take out 20 dudes? The planet- there other that would be amazing if it turned out those four guys just won it. Well, they were the planeteers. I okay. mean, that's why it cost $500 million to train Right, right, right. And guys. So when we joined together, we got like a mulleted superhero. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Well, and Captain Planet comes in and saves the day. Um, this that is would a, be these awesome. are facts. That's an these idea. are facts. We can train other people. You guys be writing partners for a movie. What's the that, other Julia? people we trained are dead. They got killed. That's right. Hmm. Well, they didn't have superpowers. Well, the, apparently the, not. The guys that we were training, we also made them sign a pe- like an oath that they wouldn't fight Assad that they would only fight ISIS. So as much as we're arguing with Russia and saying, well, how can you support Bashar al-Assad when he's the root cause of the problem? The guys we were training, the four or five guys we trained, um, I will never tire of saying that. (laughs) Uh, We made them promise not to fight the thing that we thought was the root cause of the problem. So, yeah, I see where you're coming from with the, you know, at least it's a policy line. I saw an amazing statistic, which was that there, there was some conference somewhere at which 29 different rebel groups signed some compact. 
And those 29 rebel groups didn't even include ISIS, and I don't think it included the al-Nusra people. So, so that was just 29 of the ones that we were willing to deal with. How can we possibly get involved in a situation where there are 29 different groups? That's why we're not getting involved. And that's why at first I think people were like, all right, you know, you take you take this Russia. But now that they're bombing the people that we kind of support, however tepidly. The least worst people? Yeah. Maybe? I mean, I think it might change the calculus a bit or it might just say, you know what, Russia, you want, you know, I had somebody who is familiar with the situation and works in the government told me that the Russian attitude toward this is, you know, we're like, hmm, should we take ownership of this flaming dumpster? And Russia's like, screw you, America. We take, we have flaming dumpster. <laughs> there we go. You got, you got your Russian. Russian accent. I didn't even ask for it. <laughs> All right. But Julia, it matters which part of the flaming dumpster you decide to train your machine guns <laughs> on, right? Isn't that the problem? Yeah. yeah. Why? Why does it matter? What, why should? Because they seem to be essentially propping up Assad. And I mean, I guess you could argue that he's the strong man that is preventing ISIS, or <laughs> it were, were, if he were only in better shape, would prevent ISIS from taking over the country, and maybe the world is but, better off with Assad in power and. The problem with America is we can't own up to that, and Putin has the that, that's not, strength that's not, to say it. That's not quite true, because when ISIS burst onto the scene last summer, there were reports that Assad was actually coordinating with ISIS to some extent, because he very shrewdly realized that having ISIS on the scene legitimized his—I'm trying very hard not to curse here—false argument that— uh, he wasn't fighting a rebellion against him specifically, that he was fighting global terror and that countries like Russia and the U.S. should be on his side. So in this very classic move, if you talk to people who study civil wars, uh, ISIS essentially teamed up with the Assad regime, except for when it you know, beheads some of its generals. But a lot of the time they stay out of each other's way. Right. Well, I'm glad I'm wrong about that because Assad just seems to me to be such an evil actor in all of this. Have you ever heard him speak? He's given a bunch of interviews to Russia today, of course, and he has the most high-pitched, lilting voice and has this lisp. It just makes him sound so much more evil. <laughs> Jamel, given, or given the situation here, is there any uh, policy, is there any clear policy that the U.S. should have? Should the U.S. sort of say our policy is now to support the Assad regime? Or our policy is now to um, to, ha to have no involvement in this region at all. I mean, is there, is there a clear set of goals that we could actually lay out in the way that Putin has seems to have laid out for, for Russia? So, you know, it's, it's ugly and it's messy and it's unsatisfying and it runs very contrary to Americans, I think, conception of themselves as like heroes and rescuers. But I think this ad hoc sort of will do what's in our best national interest um, but we won't do any more than that, and we feel no particular need to get involved is the best course of action. Like, I, I do not think But that what does that mean? I mean, to me, what it means, I'll give answer that for myself, which is that there was a, in, people don't talk about this in the United States, but in Africa for much of the last 15 years, there was a huge continental war in Congo, millions dead. Nobody in the U.S. thought about it, cared, didn't care about it, didn't really have any geopolitical significant geopolitical implications for the United States. We're just like, screw it, whatever. I don't see why. I honestly, I still don't see why we can't say that I mean, about Syria. Like, to, you know, like, go ahead, happening. kill yourselves. Yeah, it's, 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 it's sort of, I mean, sorry. to the extent that it seems like, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm no expert here, but it seems like to the extent that the United States has sort of 
has made the decision to to intervene, it's because we have assets in like neighboring countries. We 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 were we've been there for a while, so we can't completely sort of dis, disengage. But I have a sense that if let's say. <laughs> Let's say it's a weird counterfactual. The Syrian civil war happens and the United States has nothing to do with the region. I think the Obama administration would just be like, I mean, this is shitty, but we feel no obligation to get involved. I well, how about also, I mean, isn't there a better spin on that, which is, and when we do get involved, we just break things and screw things up even worse than they were before. See Iraq, see Afghanistan, see Libya. We don't know how to do this. This part of the world is beyond us. And so... As much as we might want to imagine some humanitarian fix, unless we're willing to put hundreds of thousands of soldiers on the ground for many decades, that is not going to happen. And even if we did, we're, we don't understand the culture well enough to do that, to do it right. Uh, I have a couple of thoughts on that. Uh, unlike Africa, uh, the U.S. has had a historic, very deep uh, role in the Middle East. And we have allies in the Middle East that we've been arming and supporting and sponsoring for decades. For ex- That's worked out well, except for Egypt, Israel. Israel. I mean, I mean it worked out well or not well. It is, it is what it is. So, you know, we didn't have the kind of deep ties with Africa that we did with the Middle East. And uh, if you look at, for example, the political hot button issue that Israel's become, if ISIS, for example, moves a little bit more south... It threatens to bleed into Jordan. It threatens to, they're threatened to Lebanon. be, cro- yeah, well, Lebanon's already like teetering on the edge of disaster, cross-border attacks into Israel. I mean, all kinds of nightmare scenarios. Um, I spoke to a fairly senior person in the State Department who was saying, who's a humanitarian interventionist uh, Democrat, and he was saying that um, it's very hard there are things we could do, and there are things we could have done that would have been much simpler, much more, much less costly in terms of blood and treasure early on in the conflict. And as the situation spins on out of our out of our control, without our putting any thumbs or fingers on the scale, it becomes harder and harder and more expensive to do, and the situation becomes worse than anybody could have projected or did project, even in their wildest worst case scenarios. So. But at the same time, he said it's very hard to sell a counterfactual, a hypothetical counterfactual to the American public. So he said, for example, if Syria were like Libya today, we'd be in fantastic shape, which tells you how bad uh, this seems from the U.S. government perspective. But he was saying that Libya looks horrible. And if we didn't have Syria as the counterexample to that, it would have been impossible to sell. Like, you can't say, you know, we might have down jets, we might have dead American servicemen, it's going to cost gazillions of dollars. But we won't have had a refugee crisis in Europe and chemical weapons attacks and a really destabilized region and a satanic death cult holding large swaths of the region, sending uh, European and American citizens back home to do lone wolf attacks. Like these are things if unless they have happened and people have seen them, they're impossible to sell as Wait, but what does that argue for as a as a current strategy? Does that say things are really expensive to deal with now, but we really should deal with them well, because no, look, they've already gotten so much worse, and therefore we should. I'm I'm, I'm just arguing. Or that we already blew it, and therefore let's let's go. I'm back just home arguing and watch with the. TV. I'm arguing Netflix with Netflix and chill, baby. <laughs> uh, with Assad, I'm I'm arguing against the basic premise of we don't. I think we may have overlearned the lesson of Iraq. Um, you know and. 
somebody, one, a neocon I know was telling me like Obama was so scared of becoming Bush that he became Bush in a different way. Like he's very ideological in a different way. He very much believes that there, we don't understand the region. There's nothing we can do that it will turn out right. So it's like a, a, a son who is so scared of becoming his father that he becomes the exact opposite of him, but a weird but, mirror mean, image of him. On. I mean, like, what, <laughs> what's the example of where this turned out right? Where any, where any U.S. intervention in the past 50 years has turned out right? Uh, the former Yugoslavia? That was pretty good. Yep, you did a good job the there. that's the one exception. Kosovo. Mm, yeah, it I did. Mean, like, okay, there's, it's there was less... It's not the region, though. It then, ain't the Middle East. You know, it was one but it, it, small I mean, area. underestimate the extent to which the, the, the former Yugoslavia was a a long simmering stew of ethnic resentments that already sparked a global a global conflict, you know, a couple of generations earlier. And it was in some ways very similar to what's happening in the Middle East. It's a kind of ethnic cleansing, ethnic sorting out. It was also seen but as I mean a there was a smaller re- scale and a less uh, you know And it ha- and it was it was genuine it was part, part it's part of Europe. And so Europe there was a strong right. European incentive to say like let's Well now not there's let a this- strong I mean now Europe's been su- Europe said this is Syria is not our problem. Now Syria is very much their problem. I'm not saying that we right, should or shouldn't do anything. Crisis. I'm just making the case that simply saying, you know, we have we have no knowledge, we have no ability to be able to um, do anything right in this region is also not. A great policy, and also hasn't led us anywhere good because Syria's a disaster. And, and this might—I mean—I I think often in sort of just foreign policy, you're left with a set of not even just only bad choices, but lots of actually genuinely terrible choices. Yeah. But you have yep. to make some kind yep. of choice. Um, so the the argument was, for example, back in 2012, 2013. That's no longer feasible. I'll get back to that in a second. But the argument in 2012, 2000. 13 was enforce a no-fly zone over Syria, take out Assad's uh, air force, which would have been quite easy to do with very few uh, losses for the U.S. That would have prevented uh, him from taking out hundreds of thousands of civilian lives, radicalizing or also, also killing a lot of the moderate opposition, radicalizing the opposition that was left, uh, making this a cause for Islamists all over the world. The argument was that if if we had done something small like that, we would have prevented ISIS from forming. <clears throat> the problem is now you can't do a no-fly zone because ISIS controls half of Syria. Uh, Assad controls little bits here and there than like various other rebels. So a no-fly zone isn't really going to do anything. So if you do anything now, it has to be bigger and grander and more risky and more costly. But also, I disagree. It- the premise of those, if you had only in 2002, if you had only in 2012, 2012 mm-hmm. if you had only in 2009, there's very little in our recent history to suggest that if only we had, the things would have been better. General, general, you know, the surge is a, maybe a small counterexample. But in general, the things that we try have produced pretty terrible results. And I don't think there's – I don't think you can you can automatically say if we'd only done this small thing the We've, we've, we've had also, this good result. We don't know that, and we and 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 there wasn't. There simply was not political or uh, will. There wasn't belief in it. There was no. The, the, I don't know. And I, judging by what you're saying, there still isn't. Um, I, I'm. I'm. I guess it. the other problem, though, is if if you know the that argument, even if David's wrong, only takes us to what we regret, what should have happened, like our hindsight argument. It doesn't 
tell us what to do now because those things are out of reach now and the the potential interventions would be on such a bigger scale. Well, that, that's exactly what I'm saying. That You've perfectly formulated it. What I'm saying is that the longer, this is an argument, I'm not going to represent one school or the other, but the argument is the longer you wait to do anything, the uh, the more costly and risky any potential future action becomes like every right. uh, so that the mindset it, it, the overlearning the of mindset the, the mindset actually problem. narrows your feel your range of motion uh, narrows your policy options from like bad to horrible to terrible to horrible the longer you wait and what you said about you know we've also had a tendency to uh, exacerbate our own mistakes. Like we went into Iraq, that was a mistake. Then we did a bunch of other mistakes on top of that. Had we left behind a residual force or something a little bit more muscular, ISIS wouldn't have been able to. But Maybe. you know, like, but yeah, yeah. But once you're and, in there, once you're in there, you but, have to. But isn't it also true? The longer you wait, the more the po- there's also the possibility that this problem solves itself without you having to do something about it. Um, how would that look? I don't know. I, but I, I mean, sure. Okay. So the, the thing is that, um, yeah, that is a possibility. But the longer you wait, the more territory ISIS. Like, are you cool with ISIS having a lot more territory in the Middle East or uh, American citizens? So in the last year, the number of American citizens who have gone to join ISIS has more than doubled. And it's going up as Russia gets more involved. The Russian church calls us a holy war. Um, you know, when, was it like 250 sure, sure, sure. at the last like, count? Right? You know, 250 people? That doesn't, right. okay, whatever. A, like, a bunch I, of them? That's not my war. I mean, it's not. No, I'm no, not, no that, that's fine. But they come back. They come back. There has not been a domestic terrorism attack of any note in this country that's since right. 9-11. That's right. But there could be. Yeah, but there, there could, could be. be. Yes, look there at, could look be. There are lots happening. of things that could be. But, but look, we're spending but look at, the yeah. amount that we spend on Homeland Security. You know, we are over-investing in all of that. Look at Europe. They have had ISIS-inspired attacks. They have had... People, they have had attacks organized in some way by people who have gone to Syria and come back. So the fact that it hasn't happened here yet doesn't mean it won't happen. doesn't mean it will happen. Well, I'm just saying that it's not necessarily it's not necessarily something that's happening over there, and we should just I, ride you know, it out. You know, Europe, if Europe is concerned about ISIS attacks, and, you know, they're, Europe, they're, they're, it's a continent of 400 million people, they have— Military, they have weapons. They are very close to Syria. If they choose, if they, they believe, they can also do a better job can, of integrating can, their you know, Middle Eastern They Eastern want to close yeah, their borders. Yeah, absolutely. No, 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 Emily, I agree to, with you. the The French have wanted be, have been wanting to do something in Syria, but they don't have the actually they don't have the air capabilities to do it. That's think, just a technical. I, I continue point. to think, just sort of conceptually, uh, a thing like American, a problem American policymakers have is. There's very little w- will to just want to manage something, right? Like I think, I think what Julia is suggesting is that the smart thing for the United States to do, to have done in 2011 and 2012, was simply to try to man to try to manage things in Syria so that like it doesn't get to its worst case scenario. Which and is that, what they thought they were doing. Right, to be fair, right? But there's 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 often we often want to have something a thing or series of things we can do that will either end in a victory of some sort. Um, or we can just, you know, we can clap our hands and walk away and say we did a good peace, job. Peace, peace, Jamel. We like peace. We like peace. But, I, you know, I, I, there, what's that line from Game of Thrones? The, the night is dark and full of terrors. <laughs> it's I, I, not I te- about peace. I, I tend to think that that's just how the world is. And so you yeah. have to learn to manage it. Um, and managing it never looks pretty. And I don't think Americans in particular have the stomach for the kind of 
ugliness that, that looks like. And that's, fa- I mean, fair enough. Um, that's not, not me taking a, a stance, just yeah, sort yeah. of like my like my 30,000-foot analysis of American attitude. No, I, I agree with you. At the same time, Americans love America being a superpower, and they're right to because there's a lot of economic perks that come with being uh, a global superpower. But because we kind of lucked into the role in, about 100 years ago, <laughs> you know, sometimes we're willing to do the work that comes with it, and sometimes we're not. I understand both impulses, but um, it's kind of sometimes we want to have our cake and eat it too, be a global superpower and be like, can Russia just fix this for us? Have the dumpster, Russia. Jamel, what was the line again from Game of Thrones? I want to hear that again. Uh, the night is dark and full of terrors. Yes. All right. Let's uh, let's you. end there. That was a great close. <laughs> Julia Yaffe, uh, thank you, as always, for excellence in podcasting, an award for excellence in podcasting. The GapFest is also brought to you by Bonobos. Every guy wants to look his best, but few of us, except possibly Jamel Bowie, who is a, who is a dandy, few of us want to put in the effort to maintain a stylish wardrobe. If you're somebody like me, it is very annoying to have to go clothes shopping. I don't like doing it. It's, I'm bad at it. It requires a ton of effort. Bonobos takes the pain and hassle out of finding stylish clothes that fit. They have clothes for any body type, any fit preference. You can easily browse online through top quality styles in your home. There's free and easy shipping and returns. There's personable and fast service. And you can even try clothes on at one of their guide shops before you buy. Bonobos offers a full line of stylish men's clothing, all meticulously crafted for a better fit. Shirts for the office or the weekend. I bought a shirt for the office, which actually I wore on the weekend. So it was both for the office and the weekend. Suits that fit like they've been tailored just for you. Jackets and outerwear, ties, belts and shoes, even golf clothes. You can look stylish, feel comfortable, and pick your perfect fit from slim, standard, or tall. For a limited time, all new customers can get 20% off their first order when they go to bonobos.com slash gabfest. That's B-O-N-O-B-O-S dot com slash gabfest to discover the difference that an expertly crafted, better-fitting wardrobe can make. All right, let's go to our third topic. We've been feeling a, a, a Baslon shortage at the GabFest recently, feeling like the, the best thing about the GabFest often is just an Emily Bazelon special, some kind of great legal case, some outrage, some legal outrage that Emily can explain with her um, limpid clarity or clarid limpidness, whatever limpid means. Um, <laughs> so uh, we asked Emily to find us a case. And boy, she found us a case. Tell us about, tell us about this case that you want to talk about, Emily. I wrote this week about a guy named Joseph Buffy. When he was 19 um, and living in the town of Clarksburg, Virginia, he got arrested for a few break-ins, basically with a couple of friends. He broke into three businesses. He was looking for money. They stole some stuff, although really not very much. Um, And he got arrested. And when the police pulled him in for questioning about a week later, he admitted to the (laughs) break-ins. So the morning after the break-ins, there had been a terrible rape and robbery right near one of the stores that Buffy and his friends broke into. Um, It was the rape of an 83-year-old woman, and she was actually the mother of a cop. So while this crime was happening to her, she told the police she was trying to watch carefully, like to think about observing details so that they could help, so she could help find the assailant. Um, And so she described various things about what the guy was wearing. And she made it clear both to the police and to the nurse who examined her that there was one assailant. 
So because of the proximity and because they didn't have any other suspects, the police questioned Joseph Buffy for nine hours about this crime. He was this 19-year-old kid. It was three in the morning um, by the time the nine hours were up and the tape recorder went on. He hadn't eaten anything. And he finally said, OK, I broke into this old lady's house. And then a few minutes later, he tried to take it back. He said, you know what? I didn't really do it. But the police didn't believe him. And his two friends, who both stood to gain in terms of sentencing reductions for the break-ins, they both implicated him in the rape. So he gets a lawyer. Um, the prosecution makes a plea offer that if he pleads to the rape and the robbery, he won't have to accept responsibility for the other crimes, mostly involving the break-in. And as the months are ticking by up to his final plea and sentencing hearing, his lawyer is calling the prosecutors and saying, hey, do you have the DNA results back from the rape kit? And the prosecutor is saying, nope, we don't have them. Sorry. And they were also saying that their plea offer was going to expire. Uh, Buffy's lawyer told him he could expect to serve about 15 years since he was young. And Buffy decided to plead guilty. So in open court, he admitted responsibility. He said, yes, he'd committed this rape and robbery. He was sentenced to between 70 and 110 years in prison. This is a terrible crime in a small town. And after he got to prison, after his sentence... Um, and started trying to appeal, he finally received the DNA results. It turned out that they pointed away from him. The person who raped this victim was not him. He was excluded from the DNA results. And it also turned out that the prosecutors had these DNA results six weeks before the final guilty plea. So Buffy found all that out back in 2002, and he is still in prison. He's been represented for a few years now by the Innocence Project, and they have been arguing a couple of things. Um, one other important fact is that they won a long struggle to run the DNA results against CODIS, which is the national database um, of DNA in the criminal justice system. And they found a match. They found the person whose DNA was in the semen um, that was found on the rape victim. And that guy actually had a history of being accused of sexual assault, and he has since last May been convicted himself for this rape. But now the prosecutors argue that there were was more than one person, that Buffy was there, that the victim somehow didn't have any awareness he was there because he was like using hand gestures and whispers to communicate with Adam Bowers, the guy who was convicted, the DNA guy. The victim has dementia. She's now in her 90s. There's no way to run this new theory by her. Um, so there's a big kind of question of innocence going on, and this case will come before the West Virginia Supreme Court, um, which will have to look into all of that. But there's also this underlying legal issue that really interests me, which is about whether if the prosecution is withholding evidence that points to your innocence, but they do that before you plead guilty as opposed to before a trial. Do you have a right to that? And that actually turns out to be a question that the Supreme Court has never answered. Um, if you uh, can show that evidence was suppressed that could have helped you prove your innocence before a trial, you absolutely have a right to that as long as it could have affected the results of the trial. That's this 1963 big ruling called Brady versus Maryland, big Supreme Court case. But the Supreme Court has never said that you have the right even to DNA results like these before you plea bargain. And so 
the question is, like, should the courts extend that protection to plea bargaining, which at this point is more than 95 percent of cases? Um, we live in a world in which almost everything is resolved through plea bargains and not trials. And yet there's like this missing, I think, missing link there in the law. Is there any, um, that was a long-winded explanation. No, it's I'm so sorry. interesting. Is there any reason? I mean, you, you've made this point over and over again, and, and other people have too, that the judicial system is now very much the plea bargain system. So that what happens in the whole plea bargain, the charging, uh, the all the, the stuff before – we actually do trials pretty well, but it's all the stuff that comes before it is the overwhelming majority of what the judicial system is. And if we don't – if we don't have clarity about what defendants are allowed to know, that seems problematic. Is there any reason to think that the Supreme Court would uh, would screw defendants in this case? I don't think so. However, all the federal appeals courts don't agree on this. The Fifth Circuit, which is the appeals court in Texas and Louisiana and I want to say uh, Mississippi, I want to say Mississippi, has ruled that the defendants don't have a right to evidence that could prove their innocence for plea bargaining. And the reason, and I'll, I don't find it convincing, but I'll give it to you, is that if you decide to accept a plea offer and plead guilty, well, that's up to you. That's voluntary. And if you decide, you know, not to wait for your DNA results. Joseph Buffy could have waited. This is what the prosecutor in his case said to me over the phone last week. Like he knew they were out there. If he really thought they were going to exonerate him, why didn't he wait? And this prosecutor was saying to me, look, you know, Joseph Buffy had a right to plead guilty. He had a right not to wait around and go through a lot of pretrial proceedings. Sometimes people just want to take responsibility for their crimes. Um, this prosecutor obviously thinks that Buffy is guilty. So that's the argument in that direction. Um, yeah. You is the argument that you have a right to any evidence that is available when you would plea bargain, not presumably any of evidence that might become available, right? Right. Yes. No, it has to be available. So the standard in Brady itself isn't even that high because there's this um, – there's a catch. Prosecutors only have to turn over exculpatory evidence if they think it's material. And that question of what does it mean to be material is one that there's, as you can imagine, been endless litigation and hand-wringing over, and there isn't a super satisfactory answer to it. You know, some people who want to reform the criminal justice system say, forget it. Like, this materiality standard in Brady is um, one that prosecutors manipulate, and we should just have them be required to open their entire file to defendants, let defendants decide what's material and what they want to follow up on. But And there are a few states, I should say North Carolina, is one of them that actually have basically what's called open file discovery in criminal cases. It's not utter and total, but it's really much more possible that the defense will get to decide for itself what evidence is available. Um, and I guess one more point I want to make about this is in addition with the rise in plea bargaining and the, you know, incredible power prosecutors have to determine the shape of the plea offer, to ratchet up charges in a way that means the defendants are facing just a huge potential um, prison sentence if they opt to go to trial. There's also this problem of the fact that the police are the ones with the evidence, right? I mean, the state is the one that secures the crime scene, that does the questioning of witnesses initially. Like, there's a reason that it's the prosecutors who have the evidence and not the defense. Isn't Would some of this be solved if, as I understand plea bargains, plea bargains are a negotiation between prosecutors and defendants, which judges then can ratify but the judges themselves yes, aren't negotiating. Yes, judges get to approve them. Wouldn't it be Wouldn't it be more sensible if the, the judges themselves are part of this negotiation? That that would 
Well, that's a really good question. That's another proposal that's been out there, and there are a couple of states, and I actually think Connecticut is one of them, though I've never gone home and tried to figure this out, that do involve justice judges in the plea bargaining process. And what you would hope would be that if you have a neutral arbiter, that they become more fair. Um, so, yeah, that does seem like one step you could take. I guess I'm a little... Um, a little wary of thinking how much better that will be. And one reason is that, you know, in most states, or a lot of states anyway, judges are elected, and there is a lot of pressure on them to appear tough on crime in the same or similar way there is for prosecutors. So while I think having them there would be better than what we have now, I'm not sure it's really going to solve the whole problem. It seems it seems to me that so much of this comes to the very odd the very perverse incentives prosecutors and some judges have not necessarily to get the to solve the crime or get the right person but just to get a person yeah. Right. Or to win. Right. I right. mean, there's something very strange when you think about it, about Brady. Like the idea is, OK, we have an honor system here. And if you uphold it, you're going to be more if you if you prosecutor are very ethical and scrupulous and turn over all the evidence to the other side, you're going to be more likely to lose. Meanwhile, you're usually in many cases, especially for the elected DA, you're being evaluated based on your conviction rate. Right. So there's just some, the, the incentives are seem to me to be completely misaligned there. Last uh, small point on this, Emily. Why do the West? Why are the West Virginia prosecutors so adamantly opposing uh, Buffy's efforts to get himself exonerated of this crime? Why? Why bother? They have another person in prison for it. They have a conviction. Why, why fight this? Okay. Well, yeah, so that's a good question. I mean, when I was talking to the prosecutor in this case, um, David Romano, I think he truly believes that Buffy's guilty. Just thinks, you know, he told three police officers he did it. He had these two friends who implicated him. One of them recanted, by the way, but the other one is not. And that's good enough for this prosecutor. You could also wonder if there's just this unwillingness to admit error. I mean, if you really ha grapple with the idea that maybe you got it wrong 14 years ago and this guy has been in, sitting in prison ever since, that is a really morally um, disturbing position to put oneself in. And perhaps that can sometimes account for why prosecutors are unwilling to back down. I, that's, that tends to be what I think, because once you, once you admit to yourself that you got one case wrong, then you begin to evaluate everything. And right. I mean, I will also point out that there are now about 1,800 exonerations around the country since the 80s. And in about 10 percent of them, there have been guilty pleas and false confessions. So this is something that happens. Um, you know, we often think it happens to people who are intellectually disabled or who are juveniles. But I was talking to Brandon Garrett, a professor at UVA who wrote a book about convicting the innocent. And he said, no, you know, actually, sometimes just like being questioned for many hours, um, under circumstances where someone keeps telling you you did it, you just need like. And he was also arguing that it's even possible that being an innocent that being innocent is a risk factor for a false confession in the sense that you could think like, okay, I'm just going to say whatever I need to say to get out of this room, and it'll get cleared up later because I didn't do it, and they're going to figure that out. Ay ay ay. All right. Ay ay ay. Yeah. So anyway, we'll see what happens. The argument in this case is um, this coming week in the West Virginia Supreme Court, and at some point they will issue a ruling. We'll have to try to report back. Great. All right, Emily, do you have time to chatter or no? I think I better run out the door, but I am okay. sorry. You guys better have extra good chatters to make up for mine. Okay. We're going to go to cocktail chatter, Basil Onless. Um, bye, guys. Bye. bye. So we'll go to cocktail chatter, Basil Onless. Emily had to 
run out, although you will magically hear her in the Slate Plus segment, which we recorded before Cocktail Chatter. Um, so, Jamel, it's just me and you. Just me and you. We're just having a quiet drink at home. Yep. What um, What are you drinking? Probably just a beer. A beer. Me too. Yeah. Good. Nice. Uh, what uh, What are you going to chat about? Uh, two things. Uh, the first is a little old. It's a book by Robert Harris, who I believe is a historian, uh, called Fatherland. Oh, yeah. Which I just read on a recommendation from a friend. Uh, about a sort of alternate history where Hitler wins the war and uh, Europe is a greater Germany and a, you know, scrupulous um, kind of hard-nosed-luck police officer, a classic archetype detective, uh, finds a body and stumbles in to... I mean, I'm not spoiling anything because it's very obvious from like the first (laughs) 20 pages, but stumbles into into the conspiracy to hide the Holocaust. Um, and kind of discovers the Holocaust, and it's very thrilling, and very. I read, I'm going to read this. It's I, I've I'll always give, wanted to. Read I'll it. give you my copy. Do you um, have it here in the office? I have it here in the office. But I'll bring it in. But so what? I'm recommending it for two reasons. First, it's just a fun book. I read it over the course of like a day and a half, and it was it was a t- uh, delightful, thrilling, chilling, all of that. The other thing, and the reason why it was recommended to me, is that I think it does actually carry some lessons for Americans today, and that is that. So because so much of history is determined by, you know, the winners of sorts, we should be careful not to take our take the surface level view of our of our country and our history um, and just assume that to be the case. And I think for us, that's especially true when it comes to um, kind of the age of lynching and and really the age of lynching. Um, And I think that's I think to rewind a little bit throughout the South. Thousands of lynchings happened between 1880 and about 1930, um, and there is no marker of them. If you were to travel through the towns where dozens of people were strung up and murdered, there would be no record whatsoever that that happened, um, and you would have to discover it. If you if you if you had no sense that this happened, you would have to actually interview people and kind of figure it out. Um, down in Tulsa, Oklahoma, there's. There, there are plaques and in, in such to the Tulsa bombings, but if you didn't know that it happened, you may never realize it. And so that Father, Fatherland is a, uh, is a dramatic uh, example of that phenomenon, but that happened. That, that, that's a phenomenon that happens here in the United States, and I think we should be aware of it um, and, and try to combat it. So that's one cocktail chatter. And you could, you could even bother my reason, uh, borrow those reasons for read, reading it. The other, and, and I think this is very trendy right now, but I'm listening to the cast recording of Hamilton, um, and it's just brilliant. It's utterly brilliant. Um, I gotta, I gotta, get, I gotta. Get it's it's that. it's convinced me that hip hop might be like among the best genres for trying to capture like a certain, just a certain spark about early America. Like it's right. it's perfect. I, I, John and Emily and I really want to do a Gabfest segment about Hamilton, but we we can't haven't gotten tickets if you're a hamilton producer <laughs> we would like to come and see hamilton and do a segment about it so hamilton producers if you're listening please um my chatter uh is uh, i just emailed you jamel telling you to bring me bring me fatherland okay my chatter is uh, a few weeks ago i think i talked about this as a work in process um that atlas obscura was we were crowdsourcing uh, america's greatest business pun names and we ended up collecting thousands of names of, of pun businesses, the curl up and die hair salon types. And we finally um, published it. We published a map and lists of all the best ones. And it's just, I, I cannot recommend this highly enough as a way to kill some time and bring you pleasure. I will just read you some of the, so I'm in the pet care section. There's just so many. 
So there's um, boarding facilities for pets, Barkingham Palace, Chateau Marmot, Crate and Marrow, Bauhaus, where you would um, get your pet's uh, haircut, Vanity Fur, Barks and Recreation, Barking Bad, Cinecin Canine, uh, The Crate Escape, Doggy Style, so many doggy styles, Wizard of Paws, The Barking Lot, it's Ace of Spades, The Bark Side of the Moon. It's just, it is a gift that keeps on giving. So uh, if you go to Alice Obscura, we have just thousands of business puns. We are celebrating the creativity of, um, of America's small business owners. Okay, GapFest intern is Tark Barrett. Our producer today is Jason DeLeon, as well as Dan Bloom. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. The GapFest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our show page is slate.com slash GabFest, which has links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash GabFest. Our Twitter feed is at SlateGabFest. And our email address is GabFest at slate.com, which is where you should send your intern application, please. You can subscribe to the GabFest on iTunes and leave a comment and rating while you're there. You can search for Slate Political GabFest in the iTunes store to find it. For Jamel Bowie, guesting for John. Thanks, Jamel. Emily Bazelon. And our other guest, Julia Yaffe, I'm David Plotz. We'll talk to you next week. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs>